What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today, once again, I interview economist Anthony Davies. Anthony and I talk a lot about the current state of the economy. Are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? What's to come? How are we going to get out of this situation? And how all the politics come into play when it comes to either being put into a recession or trying to get out of one. We also talk about income equality, Brittany Griner, and that whole transaction and censorship and how much or how involved a government should or shouldn't be when scripting a narrative for the population. Hit that like button, subscribe to the channel and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content. Now enjoy this episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast with economist Anthony Davies. Peace out. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today, once again, we have Anthony Davies. No intro from me. I'll let you tell the tell the listeners and the watchers who you are. Thanks for having me on. I'm Anthony Davies, Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University and co-host of the weekly podcast, Words and Numbers. Yes, awesome. And, and Anthony has been on the podcast multiple times, I think four or five times now. Uh, and every episode is always a doozy. It's always good because I learn a shit ton of things, whether it's about the economy or politics or just the government in general and how things really work. Um, but this one, I really want to focus on currently the state of our economy and how things are going and how things are trending. So let's just get right into it. And, you know, are we in a recession right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and the, the fact is, no one's going to know probably for another six to nine months mm. until the data come in and we can look at it. You know, the rule of thumb that, that people use is two negative quarters. So two quarters of GDP um, contraction, which we did have back uh, in the summer. The, the problem there is that's just a rule of thumb. It's not the official definition. Now, it so happens that that rule of thumb matches or has matched thus far the official definition with the exception of this past summer. But the um, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the, uh, that's the group of economists who officially um, declare a period of recession, they look at all sorts of things. It's much more complicated than whether we had one or two quarters of negative growth. But I can tell you this, uh, if we're not in recession, we're on the precipice of it. Right. Now, whether we pull back from that or go over the edge, I don't know. Right. That's that, That's what I've, I've always heard and seen is people say, oh, well, we have two quarters of this. Technically, by definition, we are in a recession. But I will say, like, I have felt it gradually get worse. Which is why I always question and wonder, like what you just said is, you know, we won't know if we're in a recession until blank. It feels to me like 2012, 2011, it feels to me like that uh, because mm. everything is going up. I mean, gasoline has gone down a little bit, but it's currently going back up in certain places. I never know what I'm going to get. Like when I walk into the grocery store, you know, if I go to Whole right. Foods or Trader Joe's or sit, wherever I'm going, doesn't matter. I mean, I'm spending, it, it's me and my fiance. I'm spending three or $400 at a time to get a couple meals for a week. And I've noticed that gradually going up. Um, now that's just one aspect of things. What are, what are like the telltale signs of a recession? Well, the, 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 Telltale sign is a reduction in the amount of, of productivity, how much stuff we're producing. So typically you'll see unemployment, um, 
rise during that period. Inflation isn't isn't an indicator of recession. Now, it's an annoyance, no doubt. Um, but typically, I say typically, in periods of inflation, periods of inflation are not also periods of recession. Typically, mm -hmm. there are exceptions, and the except the major exception was back in the Carter years. We coined a term for it: stagflation, the combination of inflation and economic stagnation. That was a period in which we had recession combined with inflation, and it kind of <clears throat> kind of looks like stagflation now. Mm -hmm. uh, when you know you see. Uh, businesses kind of being hesitant to hire on the one hand. On the other hand, you see the prices going up and people tightening their belts and putting off on big ticket purchases. All of that smells like stagflation, that combination of inflation and, and recession. But again, um, we won't know for another six to nine months. It takes that long for the data to come in and for us to figure out what's going on. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised either way if okay. the NBER came out and said, yes, verily, this was a period of recession, or they said, no, it's not a period of recession, but either way, we're close to it. Right. So what you're saying is in six <clears throat> to eight months or whatever, we would get data saying we were or were not in a recession, not currently going to go into one or are in one. Yeah, that's that's correct. It's always okay. backward looking. The reason for that is that it takes time to collect the data. This data comes in from, you know, every business is reporting um, tax information, employment information, mm -hmm. sales information. It takes time to collect all of this stuff and then to process it. So it's we're always looking backward, telling gotcha. you what would, what was happening. And that's actually interesting because it's part of the reason economists are tend to be very hesitant for government to use policy for government to say okay we're in recession here's what we're going to do because the government is using that same data which is not telling us what the economy is doing right now it's telling us what it was doing six to nine months ago ah okay that makes sense and it's also scary that they could use that as kind of like a tool to kind of push a policy one way or another correct Oh yeah, yeah. They'll put they'll point to it and use it to push policy. And of course, the problem is uh, economies are naturally correcting. So you can be in a situation where the latest data that came comes out, and it's data for nine months ago, says the economy's in recession. Politicians wig out and they say we have to enact the following policies to pull us out of recession. Mm. Except we're already out of recession. They just don't know it. And so they end, you end up in a situation where they're hitting the gas when the economy is already doing well, or alternatively, they're hitting the brake when the economy is doing poorly. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So is that kind of because what I'm listen, I'm not an economist. I'm not a professor. I'm none of this. But based off of experience as a human being and seeing our two party system at play, it tends to sway every four to eight years uh and typically it's the economy is booming more more than not when there's a republican in office for whatever reason i don't know um or at least it feels that way i don't know if that's really hard data but um it seems like right now we are it just feels like we're in a bad situation i know we just came out of covid in a sense but i mean covid was three years ago at this point yeah it and i think it does feel it feels strange. Um, on on the one hand, you've got you've got this 
what seems to be a decline in productivity, that there's less stuff going on. It's, it's harder to buy things. You've got the inflation going on. On the other hand, you've got um, in certain industries, businesses just not being able to hire. So particularly in, in service industries, where you've got businesses with, with um, help wanted signs all over the place and they've got to curtail their hours because they can't hire enough people. The whole business we had with the, um, the flight cancellations over the, this holiday season, yes. in part, was due to the fact that there's simply not enough employees. So businesses, it feels strange that businesses are seem to be between a rock and a hard place somehow right now. So yeah, I don't know how this all plays out. Part of it, part of it is an echo of COVID that we had this, you know, massive uh, change to the economy. I would argue it's probably the, the biggest impact, the, the, the largest event, economic event since the Great Depression easily, World War II perhaps. And we shut down huge sections of the economy. We just told people, go home, you can't do your thing. We, the government spent $6 trillion over the course of one year, which is like 50% more than it typically spends and it can't afford what it typically spends anyway, right? right. And, and all of that, all of that echoes because it creates much like dropping a, a rock into a pond that the wave creates another wave creates another wave and so you'll continue to feel the impact of all of that i would not at all be surprised that we're still feeling echoes of it you know 10 years after the fact and i point to for example the 2008 housing crisis it took us about 10 years to be completely done with all of the echoes of the housing crisis. Now, a lot of people stopped feeling it maybe four or five years in, but mm. the economists could still see the echoes going on for about 10 years. So I would not at all be surprised that we're talking about 2030 until things are absolutely back the way they were. Right, and that's and, and the, the housing crisis is completely different from a global shutdown for- right how long you know what i mean so if 10 years took it to get back to normal air quotes from the housing crisis i mean jesus it could be 20 30 years before you know that gets back to everything gets back to normal uh from yeah COVID. And, and that's worth mentioning that as strange as things feel here as off as things feel here um we're suffering way less than the rest of the world for sure um you know, largely because of the, the strength of our, of our economy to begin with. And so the, the ramifications that we feel from COVID are, um, you know, just a fraction of what the rest of the world feels. Right. That's a good point. Do, um, so, okay. So I know you don't have a magic wand, but two part question is one, do, do you think a, how, how do we get out of this if we are in a recession? Um, and what does that, that look like, you know, going into the new, you know, 2024, when we get into those elections? Yeah, so the, the question, how do you get out of it? The way you get out of a recession is you leave the economy alone, because nobody knows how to get out of recession, right? Now, the politicians will say, elect me, I have a plan. Yeah, yes, they have a plan. But whether the plan is efficacious is a huge question. Because an economy is a complex set of interactions. 
the best thing you can do is leave it alone and let the people on the ground make their own decisions and they'll bring the economy out of recession. Each person doing his or her piece, wherever they are, you your business, you decide, yeah, I'm going to expand or I'm not, or I'm going to hire some people or I'm not, I'm going to close or whatever it is. Consumers similarly make decisions, investors make decisions, entrepreneurs, and so long as they can feel comfortable that they've got a decent feel for what the future is going to look like. They'll be more apt, all those groups, to plan for the future. And that's what's going to give us the, the economic impetus that's going to bring us out of recession. So in that sense, the best thing that politicians can do is stop making waves. Stop with the you know trillion dollar deficit. Stop with the printing of the money, with the unnecessary regulations. Just sit back and let the rest of us do what we do. That's, I love it. That's literally, uh, but they can't, they can't. Then they're not oh, no. probably going to. No, they can't. And they have an incentive not to, because mm -hmm. if I'm running for office, I need your vote. And how do I get your vote? I tell you, elect me and I'll make your life better. I will do things. Right. And of course, you elect me. And when you elect me, I've, I've got to do things now because in two to six years, I'm facing re-election. I'm going to have to point back to the things I did. And of course, they're not going to have worked. So what I do is I blame it on the intransigence of my opponents. And <laughs> you need to elect me again. Elect right. me harder than you did last time so right. that we can overcome the bad party, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I, I, have you noticed, though? voters starting to because they we for forever we've been voting on like ideology hmm. and i think we're starting to understand and want to vote for problematic i don't know if that's the word but problem solving i think because before it's like oh i have this ideology of of, of how i'm going to do things and fix things in the world and the economy but now i think like we're kind of more focused on a leader who's who's actually going to focus on on solving actual problems that will affect us based off of what happened with the pandemic. Yeah, and I think you you give voters more credit than I would give them. I don't <laughs> think I don't think voters vote off ideology. Now they might claim that they vote off ideology. I think what they really vote off of is um something very similar to picking a favorite sports team. You know, I, I vote Republican and my family votes Republican or Democrat or whatever it is. And that's what we always do. And, and I see the world through the lens of my favored party and everything that's good, I attribute to my party. Everything that's bad, I attribute to the other party. And so I'm not thinking at all. I'm just saying go blue or go red. Mm -hmm. That's actually a good point. You know what? My, for years, my mom, not I'm not throwing her under the bus. She's actually quite this is quite hilarious. She would choose the candidate based off like she used to she picked George Bush because he was he he was like this cute little old man. And she put right. she picked Barack Obama because he could speak well and he was very handsome. Uh and I'm like, Mom, like have you looked at any of their policies? Like, do you know about anything of what they've accomplished? She's like, No, no, just they're just guy, he's very handsome. And, you know, and I was like, you know, she didn't vote for Trump because he's whatever because he's he's loud and this and that and it's just yeah. funny that you say that because well, that's true in some sense and and the thing is you know people might push back with my having said this and say well maybe other people do that but i don't right there was a fascinating social experiment done at, at a college i think it was here in the washington area where um 
someone went out and they were videoing this and the guy was stopping college students and saying, um, okay, I, can you, can you tell me your, um, impression of, I think it was George Bush and Barack Obama at the time. Hmm. Give me your impression of George Bush, specifically the following, uh, election platform points of his, and they'd list a whole bunch of things. And then they'd say, you know, well, tell me about Barack Obama. What's your opinion of him given these platform points? And he'd list a whole bunch of things. And the students invariably, those that identified as Republican said, yes, George Bush is great because of all these things. And Barack Obama is horrible because of all those things. And people who identified as Democrat the other way around. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. The, the interviewer had swapped out the platforms. So when he said George Bush and listed all these things George Bush stood for, it was actually things that Barack Obama stood for and vice right. versa. Yep. And what was happening is the students were just seeing the name, you know, this is the Republican, therefore he's good. Yeah, there's a lot of that on TikTok where they spin it and they'll say, uh, specifically the last couple of years with Trump and everything, a lot, actually, you probably, you might not know who his name is, but his name's Andrew Tate. He's like this big social media right, person. Right, yeah. He's, he yeah. just got arrested the other day. But these people will go out on the street and they'll say, hey, they'll read a quote from somebody and they'll say, you know, guess who said this, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? And it would be like, it would be very feminist. It would be like, you know, anti-abortion or whatever, or no, it'd be pro-abortion or whatever it is, pro-life. Um, and then they would, they would say, oh yeah, that's Hillary all day. And they was like, no, this is actually Donald Trump. And then they would show the video of him saying it or the article. And they're like, they're like, no fucking way. And it's just like, yeah, it's to your point. It's like how easily people can be kind of misled in a way or have this false loyalty to something just because, and not really think about it, which is why I really like your kind of take and your and James's take on things, you know, with the the libertarian kind of almost independent middle ground type type thing. You're more of a realist than kind of like an extreme uh, on on either end, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we kind of take the position of we don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican. We care what your policy is. Right? You know, is it a good policy? And right. we we routinely call out and praise members of both parties, depending right. on what it is they're doing. You do. You do. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, that's, there's something to be said about like the experiment that we just talked about, like that, that is scary because it's always been like that. And it's always been left or right. And I know I've talked to you guys a ton of times about the two party system and you guys always say it's not going anywhere. And it's, I don't know if you've seen my girl Tulsi lately, Tulsi Gabbard. Not lately. No, she switched completely. She hosted Tucker Carlson for him last week oh, like oh. she's completely flipped not that she said i'm running as a uh, republican but she's she's on like every republican network she's like done like a 180 because the mm. democratic party shunned her basically after she destroyed kamala harris and that in the election and or the debates and i'm just like man like it sucks that she's got to go to a machine on either side to have a voice and she right, can't just right. be heard by herself, you know what I mean? Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, it, James and I on, on words and numbers, we try to go down the middle of the road as best as possible. Um, but we have found repeatedly that people who are self-proclaimed Republicans are much more open to listening to us than people who are self-proclaimed Democrats. Now, I'm, I'm speaking with a broad brush here. Of course, there are exceptions. Sure. But in general, that, that seems to be the case. And in, in, my impression is that when I say one thing, 
that someone on the left disagrees with. They discount everything I have to say. Whereas on average, when I say one thing someone on the right disagrees with, they, they'll disagree with that thing, but they won't write me off. Right. And so they're open to hearing all sorts of other things. So we end up in this very weird space where people, people will call us conservative. We're not conservative, but, but we certainly hang out with the conservatives, not because we don't want to hang out with the liberals, but the liberals won't have us because right. we won't toe the entire 100% party line. Right. Yeah. It's a very emotional reaction i i experienced the same exact thing i've my whole life i've always voted democratic i've always been pro a blue this and that and the other and I, I as i got older i find that i have uh traits and characters of both you know there's things that right, i don't like right. on one or the other but i will say all the conversations i have with someone on the left it always becomes an emotional emotionally charged conversation and truly nothing gets done Right. It's wild. That, that's correct. Yeah. And it's it, it it hurts me principally on behalf of people on the left. I think people on the left have uh, a lot of really good arguments yeah. for a variety of things. And they're not getting the traction with middle of the road people that they would otherwise. Right. Because those middle of the road people are are somewhat I'd say most voters are are in the middle. They're not left or right. So like those yep. are the people that you're going to need to sway and the more you push them away and the further down the the, the radical left that you go the more they're just going to go over to the right yeah and in the numbers here bear you out 43 percent. so it's a plurality of americans self-identify as independent right the um the number who who identify as either republican or democrat or in the 20 mid 20 percents so we're in this very strange place where mm -hmm. our two major parties, neither of them represents a plurality of the people. Right. The plurality of the people are, are in the center, not represented by anybody. Exactly, which is why their votes are so important. But yep. if you're going to have this crazy narrative, like I get it, when you're running for president, you have to feed the farthest end on the one, one spectrum and also the other end. That's true, 100%. Like Trump is saying stuff to make the farthest right wing happy so he can kind of work his way in and and the, the the left is doing the same thing. But I think it's becoming a little bit more obvious now to the middle people that the left is just really out there, man. Like aside from the Republicans, you know, bringing in the, the you know, religion and, and, and making decisions on, on women's body and certain other, others, other things that like aren't as crazy as the left. Like, I don't agree with that. I think women should have their, you know, their choice to choose and all that stuff. But that's that's one of the bigger things that the Republicans to to me kind of get wrong, but the, yeah. the left get way more wrong now, in my opinion. I I get that sense now as well. Now to to give everybody their due, I think four years ago when President Trump was in office, I would have told you the other way around. A hundred percent. It's the 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 crazy people I'm seeing were on the right, not hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. From the QAnon and like all all these nut jobs were on the right, and I agree with you. I think that it's definitely that's why I said earlier the pendulum the pendulum pendulum mm -hmm. is kind of swaying now. I think the other way. Um, it's just interesting that the dynamic it, it goes like that, where the middle pack people have so much influence on both of these parties. Um, yeah, it's it's I don't know, it's crazy, man. Anyway, sorry. You know, one one of the things that I like to point out to people is um, 
people talk about, particularly our, our friends on the left, will talk about the problems with big corporations, which I, I don't disagree with. But one of the things that I think people don't realize is that the Democratic and Republican parties themselves are corporations. They are not governmental entities. There's nothing in the Constitution that established these parties or says we have to have two parties or whatever it is. These are nonprofit corporations. And they have managed to monopolize mm -hmm. the, the political process. They decide who gets to come in front of the television. And if you can't come in front of the television, you're not going to get a, uh, a, a following. It's, it is in every sense that people worry about major corporations taking over things. This is right. exactly, this is the poster child of that. Right. That's a good point. I didn't even think of them as that. I literally, when you see the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, this the DNC and RNC, you're like, oh, these are governed organizations. Yep. It's like, no, nope. they're actually nope. businesses. They're yeah, they're they're businesses. That's crazy. That's terrifying. What the fuck? It really is. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. All right. So back to the recession. So um last question on the recession piece. What well, do you think that it will get worse from now? Because it sucks right now. Because every everything that I've heard and I've seen on social media, now listen, no one has a crystal ball, so no one can predict it. But the heavy consensus is that, oh, it's, this is we're just getting started here. I I I'm a little more optimistic than that. Thank God. I think I think a lot will be determined by what the federal reserve what the federal government does over the next two three four years okay. if if the federal government continues to massively deficit spend and by massively i mean over a trillion dollars a year i think we're gonna have a problem because it puts the federal reserve in the position of having to choose between helping to 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 fund the federal deficits by printing money, or on the other hand, um, cutting back on the money supply in an attempt to control inflation. And notice the rock and the hard place here. If, if the Federal Reserve helps to monetize these, the, the, the federal deficits, the federal government benefits in that the interest rate it pays is lower because mm -hmm. there's plenty of money flowing in into the system, but we've got inflation. On the other hand, if the Federal Reserve says, no, we're not going to monetize you, federal government, you want to borrow more money, you want to borrow a trillion dollars, you're going to have to go to the marketplace and do the best you can. Mm -hmm. Interest rates are going to go up, but on the other hand, inflation will be down. So in a lot of ways, we're, we, the people and the federal government have come to, to loggerheads and the Federal Reserve gets to be the entity for good or ill that decides which one of us wins. Which the Federal Reserve is not a government program or a government facility correct it's like a privately well, owned yeah. thing well it, it's it's was founded by congress it's controlled by congress uh at any point congress can can disband it the senate um recommends and the president um i guess the senate the, the president nominates and the senate approves uh chair chairmen's of the fed so it it's not it's not exactly a private entity but hmm. it's not exactly a government entity either it lives in this twilight space 
Interesting. I've always, all my conspiracy people are like, oh, this is about reserves owned by the Rothschilds and the Vanderbilts. So it's like, I always thought it was, a, you know, a company. Well, yeah. And the, the, to my knowledge, the stock, the, the own, technically the Federal Reserve is owned by its member banks. However, the ownership does not come with uh, control the way ownership of a corporation comes with control. When Elon Musk bought Twitter, he owns the majority stake in right. it. He now controls it. That kind of control doesn't come with ownership of the Federal Reserve. The control still lies with Congress, with the federal government. That makes sense. Okay. Wow. I never knew that. See, so I love talking to you. Um, okay. So you mentioned, you mentioned interest rates. So that's why I feel like this is like a perfect storm and we're in a recession because interest rates are seven plus percent right now. No one's buying houses, the market, not that no one's buying it. They're just scared to buy right now right? because they don't know when it's going to come down. You're coming off of two years of the best market in history where people were getting 2%, 3% interest rates. Um, probably never see that again. That's where I have another question because I'm very confused on how if the economy is shut down and no one's making any money and we're going through this COVID, this pandemic, how is it the best time for interest rates to be low? How does that happen? How is it the best time for interest rates to be low? Well, yeah, I mean, interest rates are like 2%. So like everybody is refinancing from a 4 or 5 to 6% down to a 2% and they're going to hold on to that thing forever. Yeah, part... The problem here is that we're having this conversation at all, right? Because we we routinely say things like, well, what should interest rates be? And the Fed should raise interest rates or lower interest rates is good or it's bad or whatever it is. That conversation shouldn't be happening. Okay. An interest rate, an interest rate is a price. It's the price of borrowing money. And it should be determined like any other price through demand and supply of the thing. And mm. when the price goes up, you know, it's good for some people, it's bad for other people, but we don't sit around saying, okay, what should the price of gas be? Now, we'd all like it to be less, right? But it's not like we lobby the government and we say, okay, can you make the price of gas a buck a gallon this right. week? And yet we do that with interest rates. And, and so you're left in this very strange space where you're asking the Federal Reserve to do something that fundamentally it is not competent to do. And that is to set that interest rate, that price of borrowing money at the right level. The only way to do that well is to just leave the market alone. Let demand and supply drive the thing. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, because I like well, I, it was always confusing to me because when I hear, um, you know, like at my job when they're talking, they just came out of the best two years of their career. Um, I'm thinking like, well, like the rest of the world, everything else sucked. How, how are you guys killing it when everyone else and it that just kind of the, the demand was so high, I guess, that interest mm. rates were just so low and now it's flip flopped. Yeah. And keep in mind as well, we have a tendency to think of the economy as this homogeneous thing. And so if it's bad for me, it's bad for everybody or vice versa. And that's not the thing in times of recession. Recessions are bad for a lot of people, but they're good for other people. Rich and people. expansions are are good for some people and bad for other people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, it's not the case that it's not the case that in times of recession, everybody's doing poorly. Right. No, I agree. I think. But would you say that in times like that, during the pandemic, during times of 
the middle class and lower class not doing well. It's always the rich people typically do the best. I don't I don't know. There's an observation bias here we have to be really careful of. And it, it happens when we talk about the rich as as this static group. We can certainly point to rich people who have done well. How do you point to rich people who have done not so well? That's harder because a lot of them aren't rich. Yeah, <laughs> because right. they didn't do well, right? right? It's a static, it's not a it's not a static group. People are constantly moving back and forth. And so I, I would say it differently that in times of in times of expansion, there's greater opportunity for a person to become rich. In times of recession, there's less opportunity for a person to become rich. Right. And, and greater opportunity for a rich person to become poor. Right. Yeah. That's that's a good way to say it. I think too, I think I read something where it was like during COVID, there was there's never been more millionaires made. Um, hmm. and I think a lot of that was because people were finding new ways to make money and new ways to start a business or you know, social media or whatever it was. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Cause I would have thought yeah. not the the opposite. Yeah, that yeah, that that is one of the things we have to be careful there is we the way we count millionaires or billionaires and we say for example jeff bezos is a billionaire because he's worth you know so many hundred billions of dollars yeah but it's he's worth that on paper mm -hmm. that is he's got a bunch of stock and the stock is worth on paper a certain amount it he doesn't have the hundreds of billions of dollars in in fact let me give you a, a good analogy that works for the average person you've got a car let's say it's um it's paid off and the blue book on the car is 5000 bucks so i say well you've got 5000 bucks no you don't have 5000 i got 25 cents in my pocket so no right. no no look at the look it says right here you got 5000 bucks well, what you're doing is you're taking the value on paper of my car now if i went and tried to sell the thing i might not get 5000 bucks i might get less than that but, but the fact of the matter is, I don't have that cash. So too with people like Bezos. Now, Bezos does have a lot of cash, but he doesn't have hundreds of billions. It's the value of his stock on paper. Right. Well, it's funny you bring that up because one of the videos that I posted, that's probably the most viral that I've ever posted is of you talking about um, like taxing the rich. When people say just mm. tax the rich and you lay it out of saying like, I think it was like, if you take all the billionaires and then take whatever their their money, it's it's like it would only it would only cover the um the country's uh spending for one year. Not even not right. e or yeah. like half the year yeah. or something like that. Right. And then yeah. and then people to understand is like that's it. After that, yeah. there's no more money from the billionaires. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, that, that that's absolutely right. So the numbers, the numbers, the last time I ran them, which would have been like 18 months, two years ago, was if you confiscated 100% of the wealth from all of the billionaires, it would fund the federal government for like six months. But but even that, even that is an overstatement, because to confiscate their wealth would require us selling off all of their stock selling off all their real estate mm -hmm. and handing that money to the federal government. But when you do that, the price of the real estate, the price of stock will plummet. And so you'll end up collecting, if you're lucky, half of that. So no, you can't fund the government for six months. You can only fund it for three. 
Right. Now and you see the real problem here is in our billionaires. It's how yeah. much our politicians are spending. Right. So when you say that, because a lot of questions I had was because people are trying to understand, okay, well, Elon has 200 billion, Bezos has 250 billion, whatever it is, it all equals more than the one point trillion, whatever it was for the spending. Like, uh, what are you talking about taking all of their ass? So, so you're talking about every single penny that they own. Oh, yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. They're, they're everything, their stock, their bonds, their, their houses, their cars, their planes, their wow. cash, all of it. Wow. Which is also it, but, illegal. <laughs> right. Which is also illegal. Right. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. And people will say, well, nobody's talking about taking 100% of the billionaires. I, I got that a lot. No, we're not. That's the point. We're only talking about taking 5%. Right. But if you, but if you took a hundred percent and could only fund the government for a matter of months, Take 5%, you're going to fund the government for hours. Right. That's a good point. And then what? Then you have no billionaires, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's where I think they don't understand where it's like, oh, well, they get this money every year. No, it stops once you take yeah, it all right. and spend it. Gone. Yeah. And I've had people say to me before, okay, so what if there are no more billionaires? That's actually good. I don't like billionaires. Mm -hmm. and And people are missing the action here. The important thing isn't that, well, there are no more billionaires. The important thing is what comes next. What comes next is the entrepreneur who's in his garage, who has a really cool idea and is thinking about starting a company and hiring some people. And this idea, if it comes to fruition, would make our lives better. He's going to look at what just happened and say, forget it. Right. I'm not doing this. He's going to go get a regular job. Why? Because if he is successful, all of a sudden, he faces his wealth confiscation the same way as Elon Musk's wealth was confiscated. Right. And so what concerns me as an economist is not what's going on with our current billionaires. It's what goes on with the not yet billionaires 10 years down the road. That's a great point because I wouldn't even have thought about that. And I, I, listen, I'm not a billionaire. so I, And I, I love I love billionaires because to your point, they create a lot of things like the same person that's saying that just got done ordering all their Christmas gifts from Amazon to make it easy and convenient exactly. for Exactly. Right. So, yes. <laughs> super frustrating. Oh god. Okay. Let's talk about Let's talk about um the income equality. Yeah, I I we had on words and numbers uh recently a guest Senator Phil Graham who wrote a book it just came out recently The Myth of American Inequality and um the I loved the book. It was it covered many of the things that we cover in our book, Cooperation and Coercion. But one thing he talked about, the big thing he talked about that we did not talk about is income inequality. And I was vaguely aware of some of the things I'm about to tell you, but I became much more aware after our conversation with him. In this country, when we talk about income inequality, the numbers that people quote, so they'll say things like income inequality has been rising in this country. They're quoting numbers from the Census Bureau. So the Census Bureau does the calculations to figure out what income inequality is. But here's the thing. The Census Bureau ignores taxes and transfers. So taxes, of course, we know what that is, money that the government takes from you. Transfers, this is money the government gives to people. So maybe it comes in the form of social security checks. Maybe it comes in the form of the earned income tax credit. Maybe it comes in the form of housing assistance. But there's all sorts of ways in which the federal government just cuts checks to people. Mm -hmm. So if you ask the question, what's happening to income inequality 
net of taxes and transfers. So in other words, you everybody's earned some money, the government's taken some of it away, and they've given you some back. When all the dust settles, how unequal are we? And it turns out that income inequality in this country has been falling since the 1980s. Really? Yes. Does it feel in other that words, way? Well, in other words, what's going on is the people who the people who beat this drum about rising income inequality are ignoring all of the things the government does to mitigate income inequality. Mm. That makes good. Yeah. So all the programs that are in place to make right. it somewhat equal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you no, know we have, numbers? for example, for example, in this country, um, you know, at the federal level, a highly progressive tax system. It's so progressive that pretty much only the top 40% of taxpayers are net payers. That is, they pay into the into the federal system more than they more than comes back to them in the form of transfers. Only the top 40%. And hmm. so you're in this very weird space where our tax system at the federal level has become so progressive that pretty much any tax cut is by definition a tax cut for the rich because those are the only people who are paying. Wow. A light bulb just went off my head because that's where a lot of people get it kind of, I think, twisted when they say like, because I always hear rich people have all these like ins and outs and ways to like avoid taxes. You look at Jeff Bezos and these companies that make so much money in there that some of them haven't paid taxes for years. Is that kind of what you're saying a little bit where well, like they pay so much already? Yeah. So, so there are a couple of things here. One is, is um, the personal income tax, which is what I was talking about, but then the corporate tax, which is what you bring up, you know, for example, Amazon hasn't paid taxes in X number of years. And people, people point to that and say, look at this is evil that, you know, right. somehow Amazon has gotten away with something. In fact, what's going on is we've deliberately written the tax code this way. Congress decided it wanted to help startup companies by allowing them to write off a long string of losses against future profits. Mm. So Amazon existed for, I don't know when it was founded, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, late 90s. And for most of those years, Amazon took losses, loss after loss after loss after loss. It wasn't until recently, relatively recently, that it started to turn a profit. And people point to it and say, look, Amazon earned a profit, it's not paying taxes. Yeah, it's not paying taxes because that profit it's earning is being offset by the decades of losses that came before. And we deliberately wrote the tax code that way because we wanted to give these burgeoning companies um, a some some runway room some to, to take off before right. we start hitting them with taxes. Right. Okay. And then the personal side of things, like when you talk about Jeff Bezos, yes, his company is doing what you just described, but him personally, I assume he's in the highest tax bracket, giving yeah. away hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Yeah. Now I... I I have no visibility into individuals, right? But I can tell you about the top 1%. This is that the IRS will release this data. If you look at the top 1% of income earners in this country and you account for all of their accounting and legal gymnastics, they do the write-offs and the exemptions and the deferred income and all the stuff that they do to try and get their tax burden down. When you're done with all of that, you ask, what fraction of your income did you actually pay to the IRS? Mm -hmm. And the number for the typical 1% household is around 
They pay 32% of their income in federal taxes. Now, if you do the same thing for a middle income household, it comes out to 11. If you do it for the poorest households, it comes out to five. Now, we can argue that maybe 32% isn't enough. They should pay more. I'm open to that argument. But what we can't say is that they aren't paying. Right. In fact, they're paying way more than anybody else is paying. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, that's something that like I've I've learned uh, over over my career. As I, the more I get experience, uh, clearly the the better I do, and the more money I make, and the more tax brackets I'm going up. And that's one thing that I've noticed is like when I was young, right out of college, I was in an ex- a lower tax bracket, and I was like, oh, I was getting money back from the fucking government every year. I was like, oh, this is great. And then I started to learn more of like, okay, well, if I can just kind of break even and get nothing back and also give, give nothing. That's kind of the sweet spot where I want to be. I don't want to give 3000. I don't want to get 3000. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I'm trying to do, but it's funny you say that because I have noticed that to where like, I look at my taxes and I'm getting like over 30% taken out of it. And I'm just, I I mean, it pisses me off because then I get, (laughs) yeah, I get taxed on that. Then I get taxed the dollar when I go use it, then it get taxed. It's just like, tax like eight or nine times for every dollar right so right right that's annoying but god man, yeah that that, it happened to me Uh, i spent some time in industry i left academia went to industry Mm -hmm. and and of course there is a massive pay bump going from academia to industry and i can remember getting my first paycheck (laughs) and and in my mind i knew yo this is gonna be a nice paycheck and i'm looking at him say where did it go yeah (laughs) that's what happened i got bumped into the higher brackets right but This goes back to the conversation we're having before about inflation. One of the insidious things about inflation is that it pushes people into higher tax brackets. So for example, suppose you've got 10% inflation and your employer pays you 10% more. You're not any better off. You're making 10% more money, but everything costs 10% more. So you're just the same as you were before, except you're now in a higher tax bracket. Right. So, so you have to you're pay now more taxes. paying more taxes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. I know. It's, it kills me, man. I like it's every every two weeks. I'm like, I love it, but I hate it because it's like <laughs> right. and then and then they just rub on your face because they show you the gross and then they show you the net. And you're oh, like, yeah. yeah, oh, God, man, it's I hate it. All right. So is there anything else on the income equality you want to talk about? No, I think that that's the big thing that I think people should keep in mind whenever they hear someone talk about income inequality. Always ask the question, is this, are the figures you're quoting me before or after taxes and transfers? Right. Because it makes a huge difference. Yeah. It sounds like they're talking before because if yeah, you Typically people it, yeah. talk before. Yeah. Right. So in if, if it's before taxes and transfers, you're ignoring everything we do to mitigate inequality. Right. So of course you look at it and say, well, inequality is horrible. Yeah. Because you're ignoring all the things we do to fix it. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that kind of reminds me of the conversation we had the very first time I met you, you talked about all the programs that the government has. And we talked about, yeah. um, you know, with Andrew Yang and his, um, what was it called? Um, giving money to people. Um, Oh yeah, the the universal basic income. Right. So like you talked yeah. about that because you were like, well, yeah, but then we would have to get rid of, or we should get rid of over a hundred programs that we have. Right. Of, right. And that, those are the programs you're talking about, in a sense. Uh, well, yeah. Part part of it is that. Um, part of it is that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So let's kind of switch a little bit to you. You and James are big on little government. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you don't like big government and overreach. Correct. Right. Right. 
So what are your thoughts on censorship? Because we, we look at China and all their government owns all of their businesses. And what's scary to me is their 2050 plan or whatever. They want to be like number one in, by 2050. And they have the ability to do that because they own everything. All of their businesses are owned by the government. They they have surveillance. They, they have all these things. Their technology is is insane, probably already surpassed us if it hasn't already or will. Um, and so, you know, censorship over there is different than it is over here. But what I'll say is like, for example, Elon, you mentioned earlier, just bought Twitter. And there's a lot of things that he is putting out because he doesn't agree with the censorship of it. So he's letting everybody come back to Twitter unless if you did something illegal. Um, is there is there a line that needs that that, that shouldn't be crossed or uh, to the point where you know, or do we have to stick with what we're doing to kind of match with China? Because there's no way I feel like we're going to be able to be on par with them by 2050 if we don't do something. It's, yeah, and that's a I, lot, I, I think there are two things here when we talk about censorship. One is with respect to the government and the other is with respect to private companies. Right. So typically when we talk about censorship in this country, at least since, since COVID, we're not talking about the government. We're talking about Twitter. We're talking about Facebook. These are private companies. Mm -hmm. The First Amendment doesn't apply to them. They can right. censor you if you if they want to. I don't like it. I'm not saying they should, but I'm saying they can. There's no problem there. What bothers me is that we seem not to we seem not to treat this symmetrically. Here's what I mean by this. If a platform like Twitter, for example, is going to censor then it should be responsible, legally responsible for what appears on its platform. Mm -hmm. If it's not going to censor, then it should not be legally responsible for what appears on its platform. So take a take the telephone company, for example, you know, my cell phone provider, uh, I have my phone, I can talk on my phone, do all kinds of things, I can arrange illegal transactions. My cell phone provider is not liable for any of that because they don't curate, they don't censor what's right. going on on the telephone, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if a company like Facebook or Twitter does start to censor, I think it's perfectly within its rights to do so, but, but to keep the whole thing symmetric, it should then be responsible for what appears on the platform. And we're not doing that. We're, we're allowing these companies, I should say we're allowing, we're seeing these companies censor and not holding them liable for what is appearing on their sites. Right. And so you get something like, you know, back in the age of COVID, I in many people were concerned that Americans weren't thinking clearly about the lockdowns. We weren't weighing carefully the benefit of reduced, li reduced lives lost because of lockdown to right. the economic cost of the thing. And yet we couldn't speak freely about this because platforms like Facebook and Twitter would censor things right. that we say. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's conversations you and I had that I would put on YouTube, I would put on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, and they would literally get banned and they would get right. pulled off. Um, monetization would be gone and all that stuff. And it's, but it's like, well, and now those things, they have reinstated on my accounts because they've either come to be true 
or mm-hmm. it's no big deal anymore. It's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely now, crazy. If Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, if they were held financially liable for preventing that information from getting out, they would have made different choices. Now, they may still have decided, okay, we're a platform that censors. That's fine, but take responsibility for what you're doing. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I feel like they what they did sense, what they did censor was to your point, it wasn't even. It was either right. this person on this side or that person on that side. It was never like, okay, this person said something equivalent to this, but they're on different sides. Let's do them both. No, it was to push the narrative. And it, it felt like at the time in a more progressive liberal yep. way. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, man. Um, okay. So let's talk real quick about, and I don't have a lot of experience on this, but I'm curious on your thought because this kind of goes into not so much censorship, but like the narrative and allowing our government to pick, uh, to dictate an, uh, a narrative because, um, we just recently had, uh, Brittany Griner. She's a WNBA star, probably one of the best in the league. And she smoked hashish and she got caught with weed over in, in Russia. At the end of the day, it's not the United States. You broke a law in another country. You have to deal with the consequences. I'm all for getting Americans back for sure. Like the 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 pill that I have, the the heart, the pill that's hard for me to swallow is while she was in America and she was this very much outspoken, anti-American, you know, all that stuff. That still doesn't bother me because as much as as some other people, because at the end of the day, she's still an American. Who cares? We all make mistakes. We all feel a certain way. And we're allowed to feel that way because this is America. That's where I think a lot of people are having a lot of hatred towards her. Why we chose Mm. her over a Marine, a decorated Marine. So what, what I'm trying to get to is the fact, the reason why we chose her over a Marine, uh, because it's coming out now that we had the option to pick one of the two. Um, it's because, you know, she fits this narrative that that our current administration and the way the pendulum is right now is trying to push, which in my eyes is 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 pretty scary when it comes to not just censorship, but like I said, the big picture of things and the government dictating how people are feeling and seeing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think the thing we have to keep in mind here is that politicians are they're economic animals in that they will they will pursue in the same way that a business pursues profit politicians will pursue votes that's yeah. their that's the currency in their industry and what you had here was a situation where someone who was well known um and plastered all over the media is there as a prisoner in Russia versus this other person who, you know, you could argue if you want to argue the person was more deserving, the Marine, that's fine. But the fact is whether more deserving or not, he was lesser known. Right. And so I, the politician, I'm looking to accrue votes in the same way a company looks to accrue profit. And how can I do that more easily by pushing to release the person who's well known? Right. Because then you're, I can stand up there and say, see that? I did that. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think like the, 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 what's scary though is like what we were so willing to give Russia. I mean, we gave him someone there and his name is the merchant of death. 
and is, mm-hmm. you know, responsible for many lives lost and gun trafficking and, you know, trying to kill Americans and all that stuff. But the fact that we gave that up for a professional athlete is just, and I, I don't even want to say professional athlete. It's, she's an American at the end of the day. So like, that's really what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah. And see, I think we end up on the wrong foot at the start by asking mm-hmm. the question as you're doing, what would be the best thing to do here? That's, that's the question you and I as voters would ask, but it's not the question the politician asks. The politician's not concerned in what is the best thing to do. The politician's concerned with what is the thing that will get me elected. Right. So what you're saying is in two years or in a year and a half, whenever it is, when Biden is or whoever is trying to be reelected, he can go back and say, hey, look, I brought Brittany Griner home. Yeah. And get yeah. all those votes. Yeah. Yeah, and if if she goes on, you know, the stump, uh, um, campaigning for him, mm-hmm. that's great too. Oh, God, and young that's... people who identify with her Ugh. are going to say, yeah, because remember, we're back where our conversation started. Right. It's that voters aren't thinking about the the platforms of these politicians. They're going with a gut, and yeah, I'm a Brittany Griner fan, and she just said that. Biden changed her life by getting her out of Russia. So I'm for Biden. <laughs> right. Oh God. It's just so crazy. It's but, horrible. It's but so this bad. is the messiness of a democracy, right? So those these are the 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 messiness you said, like the bad things, the 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 versus like everything else that's great about it. Oh, well, the thing about a democracy, and this is where the founders were very they were afraid of this for, for good reason. Um a democracy is only as good as the voters. And mm. if you've got voters who, who don't care, they aren't voting, or even worse, they are voting, but they don't care enough to learn about the thing they're voting about, then you get these kinds of outcomes. It's right. You get the government you deserve. Right. Do you think that's where we're at right now? I feel like it's the latter, where you just said, like, the voters just don't, they don't care enough to do the little bit of research that it takes. Yeah, I think it is that. And I think... I don't know that there's a way to fix it, but there is a way to mitigate the effect. And the way to mitigate the effect is that you govern as, as, at as low a level as possible. You do as much at the local level as you can, and you only do at the state level what you can't do at the local level, hmm. and you only do at the federal level what you can't do at the state level. Right. And if, if we governed that way, our federal government would be a fraction of the size it is and our states would all be doing different things. You know, we have right now this, you know, questions about gun rights, questions about abortion rights, and we aren't, we aren't of a mind on either of those issues. And so you would have the states coming up with their own solutions, and Utah would do it one way, and Washington would do it another, and Maine would do it a different way. Um, and I think, you know, not to hijack your topic, but I think this is where what the Supreme Court was trying to do. In fact, I know this is what the Supreme Court was trying to do with their recent abortion decision. It wasn't about overturning Roe v. Wade. It was about saying, look, we as a country have not come to a conclusion about this topic. Therefore, it should be left to the states. Let the individual states figure this out, at least until we come to some consensus as to what the right answer is. Right. Yeah. Do you think that, sorry, not you maybe have another thought. I have two more questions. One is I want to talk on uh, something that you said. It kind of involves income equality a little bit, but like the education and what a degree is worth. But first I want to ask you about 
the um um fuck anthony it's gone it's gone it was ink no it was the you said about abortion whatever to the degrees um do you you said on my podcast before that getting a petroleum engineering degree is x amount of money throughout the career versus a i think it was like a Child and family uh, studies. Child and family, yes, right. So, I mean, people are like, oh, that's the, a degree is worth blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they get, the, which are probably teachers and, and people who are probably have that degree making $30,000 a year and upset about that. Is Does that kind of play into income equality a little bit where like one profession is valued more than another, even though like you look at firefighters, teachers, police officers, all these somewhat lower paying jobs are at like high risk or high output when it comes to like creating the next generation. Mm -hmm. you know yeah, I mean? sure it does. It, it plays. So the, the two extremes, if you spend your career with a uh, petroleum engineering degree four year degree, you can expect to earn about $7 million over the course of your career, child and family studies, you can earn about 1.5. So gargantuan difference between these two degrees. And what's happening here is, yeah, you've got tremendous inequality in, in these two. But notice the source of the inequality. The source of the inequality is the customer. We, we the customers, have tremendous need for more of the stuff that petroleum engineers do. We don't have tremendous need for more of the stuff that people with childhood education degrees do. Now, that's not to say that it's not important to, you know, take care of children and raise them well and all of that. I'm not saying it's not important. What I'm saying is that by the numbers, we already have so many people willing and able to do that. We don't need more of them. That's the why the wage is so low. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the market is dictating that. Yeah, the market is telling you. Now, you know, if you if your love is child and family studies, you know, go with God, go do it. Just don't complain later that you're making one seventh of what the petroleum engineer is making. Right. It's a decision you make. It's a trade off. We all right. make these things decisions all the time. Right. Love it. I forgot what I was going to say, but I'll shoot you an email later if I have a question. But it sure. was it was good. Um, anything else you want to discuss or talk about? No, I'm so happy you had me on. I had a great time when we talked uh, the last time, which is a couple of years ago now. Yes, yes. I no, appreciate that was, you having me on. Of course, man. I love talking to you. Um, where can people find you? You can find uh, me and my podcast at wordsandnumbers.org. Awesome. You and, and your book is, are you guys doing another one? I thought you guys were doing another one. We're working on another one, yes. But the one that's out is Cooperation and Coercion right on amazon and that will be in the link below and anthony davies thank you again for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it my pleasure thank you Corey. yep that was another episode for the e4 explosive podcast we'll see you next time